All right, we are in the book of James. If you'd like to open your Bibles or navigate on your device to James chapter 1. We're spending a lot of time in chapter 1 because we're going through this book thematically. Uh, we, we have no rush to take all of chapter 1. We will speed up after we get out of chapter 1. But in chapter 1, James deals with several different themes. They don't really overlap unless you try and make them overlap, and, and I don't want to do that, so we're going to take these one at a time. And so this morning, we're in James chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 2, 3, 4, and 12. The topic... James tells us that we should cultivate joy when trials befall us, and so the title of our message is Joy Are Us. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we talk about trials, it's not philosophical, uh, it's not academic, it's something where we live. All of us, I would guess, uh, that are Christians here this morning are going through some type of trial, some very severe trial. And so I pray that my comments, Lord, would not uh, be flippant and that they would hit the mark as your Holy Spirit takes them and brings them home. We need your grace and your strength, Lord, to put all of this into perspective. We trust that you're here to do just that. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. My iPhone always wants to be helpful, so it frequently auto-corrects the words I'm typing. All too often, autocorrect fails. In fact, there's a world of autocorrect fails on the internet, like this one. Hey, my grandpa's in the hospital. I hope he gets better, sad face. I hope he dies. What? Does. I hope he does. Or this one. I'm going to get a sandwich, BRB. Okay, my whole office is complaining because I have tuna in my underwear. Uh, I can't exactly say I blame them. Uh, LOL, I meant tuna in my Tupperware. (laughs) English can be a hard language even without help from autocorrect. Take homonyms, for example. Those are those words spelt and pronounced like another word, but with an entirely different meaning. The word hail, H-A-I-L, can be a description of somebody or something as being good or special. Or it can mean those small balls of ice that fall as rain. Or it can mean to call somebody to gain their attention. Exactly how we define a word makes all the difference in understanding what is being said. That is nowhere more true than with spiritual things in the Bible. The word we need to be careful to define today is joy. It will make all the difference between what James says about joy either being a bummer or a blessing. I'll organize my thoughts about joy around two points. Number one... You cultivate joy that counts. And number two, you anticipate joy that is crowned. Let's talk, first of all, about cultivating joy. When I was first saved, someone told me that joy was Jesus, others, you. J for Jesus, others, O, Y for you. That's nice, I guess. I should always put Jesus and others ahead of me. That's for sure true. But that isn't how the Bible says joy is produced. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. We're told it is in Galatians chapter 5 where you read, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Since it's compared to fruit, I can assume that joy is cultivated over time as I abide in Jesus. It is a byproduct of my walking with him, ripening more and more as I head homeward to heaven where my joy will be full and complete. 
The right environment to cultivate joy, its garden, you might say, turns out is trials. Abiding with Jesus in times of trials, that's where joy blooms. I would paraphrase what James is going to say by saying, consider your trials the means by which God cultivates the fruit of joy. William McDonald said, and I quote, the fruit of the Spirit cannot be produced when it is all sunshine. There must be rain and dark clouds. If you garden, you know that certain flowers only bloom at night. Evening primrose is one, and it's strongly scented when it blooms. In, uh, in trials, joy blooms, giving off that strong scent of Jesus. And so in verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. James calls them brethren. It's one of his favorite words, and it means that he considered them a part of his own spiritual family. They were definitely born again. Sometimes you'll read a commentary, and they will suggest that James is sometimes referring to Jewish individuals who are not born again, calling them his fellow Jews or brothers, uh, uh, you know, in that sense, in that ethnic sense. But it's pretty clear that G, uh, J, uh, whoever it is, James, is... Gene uh, was almost going to come get me, but I, I recovered. James is writing to believers in Jesus Christ, and specifically to Jewish believers who had been scattered from Jerusalem out into the larger world on account of persecution. It was a severe trial... And it was accompanied by many other trials, depending on exactly where they ended up. Think about the refugees today coming out of the Middle East. Uh, severe trial, uh, the, the things that are driving them from their home. And they face even more adverse circumstances where they've gone because nobody wants them and they don't know where they're going to live. And so it's a kind of a double trial. Trials here means adverse outward circumstances. It does not refer to inward solicitations to sin or what we would call temptation. James is going to deal with temptation later on in this chapter. Trials can be things that befall everyone, believer and non-believer alike, and they can be things that befall believers on account of your testimony about Jesus. And so Christians have double, at least potentially, the trouble that others have. You and I have the regular troubles that non-believers have as far as jobs and health and those kinds of things, and we are persecuted for being Christians. Fall into, very descriptive, Jesus used it of the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it says he fell among thieves. It pictures the man as being suddenly surrounded by the thieves on all sides with no way of escape and thus falling victim to their assaults. He was ambushed. And surrounded. When you fall into, let you know that trials are unavoidable. You will, at many points in your Christian walk, be surrounded by adversities, afflictions, and calamities that are hard to bear. And as I said earlier, I would guess that most of us are in one or more of those situations right now. You know why you fall into those situations? Because the world we live in is fallen. It's dominated by sin and death. And while in it, we are assaulted by unseen but malevolent supernatural enemies who seek only to rob and to kill and to destroy. In that sense, each of us is walking on a road leading to the new Jerusalem. But along the way, we're going to be surrounded by supernatural thieves on all sides. We're going to be ambushed. Or if you prefer will be attacked by supernatural beasts. The Apostle Paul once said, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. 
he probably meant that he was assaulted supernaturally by demons. Satan is described as a beast, by the way. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, isn't our lion more powerful? Didn't Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, defeat Satan and sin and death on the cross? Didn't he cry out, it is finished? Well, yes, he did, and it is finished, but it isn't over. You see it in warfare all the time. A decisive battle is fought and won. The war is effectively over, but the enemy fights on. Confederate General Robert E. Lee's surrender of his army of Northern Virginia on April 9, 1865, it marked the end of the Civil War, but not its official conclusion. At least six other battles were fought after the peace at Appomattox was signed. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. He's in the seat of victory, but the devil fights on. At some point in the future... The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of Jesus Christ. He will return in his glorious second coming. He'll incarcerate the devil and his demons for a thousand years. In the meantime, Satan remains the ruler and the God, little g, of this world. You are suddenly surrounded by adversities and afflictions and calamities. How do you respond? I couldn't help but picture a scene from The Last Samurai. I don't know if you've seen that film. Tom Cruise is surrounded by enemies who mean to assault him. In his mind, in slow motion, he dispatches them one by one as he goes through how he's going to uh, use his mad skills to win this fight. And then that goes into real time, and it's pretty cool the way it goes. And so I think we approach trials that way. We expect to have mad skills to dispatch them quickly and go on about our business. Christian ninjas. As, as oh, you trial. I don't have time for this. But it rarely plays out that way. The enemies either won't stay down or they just keep coming. They're like Rocky in the first movie. Apollo Creed's like, hey, I finally knocked this guy. And he looks back. And there's a, it's the greatest part of the whole movie is the look on Apollo Creed's face when he sees Rocky get back up. And he's like all bloody. Remember, he's, <laughs> he just won't stay down. You can't, you can't keep that guy down. And so that's like our trials. It's like, man, I, I gave it my best uh, Krav Maga move. I hit that thing with my elbow as hard as I could. And it's still standing. You wake up and you think, what's different about today? Yeah, nothing. It's worse. James will say in the next verse, let patience have its perfect work. And then in verse 12, he'll use the word endures. Not words you like to hear when you're talking about trials. Patience, endurance. It sounds like we're going to be in the trials longer than we might like. When I was a young Christian, I was taught, and I'm sure that it's true on some level, that you're in a trial so that God wants to teach you something. It's like a classroom for faith. And so I'm, I'm enrolled in the school of faith, and I'm in this trial, and then as soon as I learn my lesson, wham, now I've matured and I move on. Except then you walk with the Lord for a while and you find out, hey, I must not be getting it because this trial is going on and on and on. Can I really flunk the exam that many times? And so... Sometimes we're, we're a little bit trite, we're a little bit cliche about people and their trials and, and about how they should meet them. And I hope that'll change after our talk this morning. God is perfectly capable of delivering us from any trial. 
And it's okay to ask him to do just that. But most of the time, in the age in which we live, the trials are going to run their course. It's strategic. It is actually part of victory. It's intended to reveal the strength of the Spirit-filled life over life without the Spirit. There's no better example of this than the Apostle Paul. He was suffering a severe trial. He called it a thorn in his flesh. He called it the messenger of Satan. That's serious. He says, there's something that is like a huge thorn in my flesh. It's so painful. In fact, it is a messenger sent to me by the devil. He sought the Lord to remove the affliction. And the Lord said to Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul surrendered to God's choice by saying, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Like it or not, God is most revealed when in our weaknesses, he is made to appear strong. It is not weakness when God chooses to not heal you. It is strength, or at least it's intended to reveal a strength that can only be the result of God in you. Superior weaponry usually means victory. It's just that we consider things like healing and exorcism to be superior when in fact they are not. You see in the ministry of Jesus that those weapons did not lead to massive revival. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He told his disciples to wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, there were 120 disciples gathered in the upper room. I'm sure there were more believers than that, but not a lot more. Yet John said in his gospel that if everything that Jesus did in three and a half years of ministry in terms of healing and exorcism and miracles were written down, the world could not contain the books. The result of that incredible miracle ministry of Jesus, 120 believers and people who wanted to kill him and who thought they were successful in killing him and getting rid of him. And so, guys, it's just not true that healings and exorcisms and miracles lead people to Jesus Christ. It it wasn't true when Jesus did it, and it's not true today. And so God says, I'll tell you what is true today. Though I can do those things, and though he still does, what leads people to Christ today is when they see the strength of a Christian in the most difficult circumstances. And that's why if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, time after time as one of the saints is being martyred, those that are putting them to death join them. And they say, I I have to have this Jesus. And they follow them into martyrdom on the spot. That is where our strength comes from today. You have to know the age in which you live and the type of warfare that's happening. We read in 1 Corinthians 1... God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame things which are mighty. Base things of the world and things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And you think, man, that's pretty cool until you realize that's me he's talking about. That's you, weak, base, despised. But those are superior weapons God has in his arsenal by which we are assured spiritual victory. And that brings us to this phrase, count it all joy. Does that mean I have a choice to rejoice in my trial, to start praising the Lord? Well, maybe, but I think something else is being said first and foremost. Count, that's a word that encourages us to determine how we're going to think about our trials. 
It suggests a certain mindset we ought to adopt about our trials. We should consider trials joy. And so now let me attempt a working definition of what Christian joy is. Joy is the settled assurance that God is at work conforming me into the image of Jesus. It is the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to work together for the good. And as a result of those two bedrock principles, it is my determined choice to surrender to the will of God in every situation. I believe on paper that God is doing a work in my life. I believe that he has begun a good work in me and that he has promised to complete it. I believe that one day I will awake in the likeness of Jesus. You do too if you're a Christian. I see plenty of examples in the Bible of God keeping his word to work all things together for good. By his providence, God sees to it his plans and promises come to pass. Joseph is perhaps the greatest example of this in the Old Testament. His brothers wanted to kill him. They eventually sold him into slavery. He got thrown into jail. But finally, because he was an interpreter of dreams, Pharaoh got him released from jail. He became second in command to Pharaoh, the most power, second most powerful person in the world. And then his brothers who sold him into slavery came begging for food and didn't recognize him. It's a great story. And Joseph makes a declaration to the extent that you guys meant all this for evil, but he saw God's hand in it. He saw God's providence bringing it for good. And we think, wow. But did Joseph see that when he was in the pit? Did he see it when he was in Potiphar's house as a slave? Did he see it in jail? No, but he saw it in the end. The trouble with us is we believe that too, but we don't always see the end. God hasn't promised us that he's going to show us how everything in our life works together for good. We may not know that until we get to heaven, but we believe it. And we want to surrender to his will as that which is best and perfect for us. And we always think that we will, given the choice. We pray, Lord, I want to do your will. Every day we start off thinking that as soon as you show me your will, Lord, I will do it. But I cannot know if I really own these things unless and until I am in a trial and see my real spiritual reaction. I won't know if my spiritual garden is producing joy without trials. I cannot have a settled assurance God is at work and a quiet confidence that all things work together for good unless those benefits are tested by circumstances that seem contrary. I think I do pretty well believing God is doing a work in me and eventually all things will work together for good, even in my trials. But surrendering to the will of God, that's the place I stumble. I start out surrendering, but if the trial seems to linger as so many trials do, I can lose my joy by becoming impatient. There's kind of a, you know, at first I'm like, hey, what's going on? Oh, this is a trial. I need to count it all joy. And then it goes on for a little while, and it's like, okay, I've counted it, joy, I've counted to 10, and that's as far as I want to count. And God says, let's let's go to (sighs) 1,000. And then it begins to be a struggle. And then I try every which way to get out of it. Have you ever tried to get out of your trials? And sometimes you can. There are some things that, you know, happen that you can finagle your way out of. And, and, and that's the default position that I like. James must have experienced that impatience as well because he addresses it. Verses 3 and 4, he says, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here are those same verses in the New Living Translation. I like this reading better. It says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. James refers to the trials as tests of faith. It's a different way of describing the same thing he's talking about. They're not tests to see you fail, but so God can produce fruit. But the Lord needs your cooperation. He needs your patience. You should not cave into impatience. Keep on believing that joy is being cultivated. Patience in trials or testing gives joy the greatest chance of maturing. God is working to perfect you, to complete you. Trials are a big part of how he is able to do it. One day you'll be lacking nothing, having been resurrected or raptured to stand in the presence of God. Now before we move on to our second point, let me ask this question. Does consider it all joy mean that I cannot weep or grieve or be sorrowful in my trials? Does it mean I must express joy by rejoicing in my circumstances? The Pixar film Inside Out featured characters who represented various emotions in the life of the little girl named Riley. One of them was joy. In her bio, we read this, Joy's goal was always to make sure Riley stayed happy. She is lighthearted, optimistic, and determined to find the fun in every situation. Joy sees challenges in Riley's life as opportunities, and the less happy moments are hiccups on the way back to something great. As long as Riley is happy, Joy is happy. Is that what we're to do? Stay happy? One commentator said you must make the choice to rejoice, no matter how severe the trial. Let me put it in perspective to you. You go visit your friend in the hospital who's in a severe, difficult situation, maybe a terminal situation. The first thing out of your mouth is it, hey, choose to rejoice. This is a trial. <laughs> a little hiccup on the road of life. Uh, yeah, that'll be your last visit. And yet people do this all the time. Before you agree that we really should do that, well, you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, didn't Paul say rejoice in the Lord always? Where are you going with this? Well, just let's look at the two people in the Bible who teach us the most about joy. Who would you say they are? Well, the first one, of course, is Jesus. He is the first example of joy. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, or we might say he had the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Fully God, but fully man, filled with the Holy Spirit. Joy completely mature in his life. 100% joy, never wavering. Yet he wept on more than one occasion. He wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem for the disbelief of its citizens and for the judgment that he knew was coming. One of Jesus' names is the man of sorrows. And so full of joy was the man of sorrows. Closer to us but still more spiritual than us is the Apostle Paul. He actually is the one who said, rejoice in the Lord always. But he also said, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He didn't say, tell them to quit their weeping or that they should make the choice to rejoice. He said, no, if people are weeping, then weep with them and uh, be patient with them and help them. I can cultivate joy no matter that my circumstances make me weep. 
So don't burden believers who are in trials by insisting they smile. Don't do it to yourself. Encourage endurance, knowing that they are becoming more like Jesus and that all things work together ultimately for good, even though we may not see it this side of heaven. In verse 12, you anticipate joy that is crowned. Now, if you're explaining something to someone, do you ever forget to say something important and then you bring it up a little bit later? It's, it's not in the proper flow, but you have to get it in. Well, James does something like that in chapter 1. In verse 5, he starts a new subject, but then he remembers he has something more to say about trials, and so he brings it up again in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, this is a little confusing to us because we're reading an English translation of what James wrote. The word temptation really should be translated trials. It's the same word he's been using in verses 2 through 4. James, as I said, he will talk about temptation, but here, once again, he's talking about enduring adverse circumstances. He was returning to his previous thoughts about trials because he had something more that he wanted to say. He wanted to finish his thoughts about this, and basically he's going to tell them, hey, here on the earth, here's what they do for you, and in heaven, they do something more. First of all, he says, you're going to be rewarded for enduring your trials by being blessed. What might that mean? Well, I'm sure it means a lot of things, but one thing it for sure means is that through trials, you are brought into a closer fellowship with Jesus Christ. Someone expressed it in a poem this way, I could not do without thee, I cannot stand alone. I have no strength or goodness, no wisdom of my own. But thou, beloved Savior, art all in all to me, and weakness will be power if leaning hard on thee. I could not do without thee, the years are fleeting fast, and soon in solemn silence this river must be passed. But thou wilt never leave me, and though the waves run high, I know thou wilt be near me and whisper, it is I. And so we're blessed to know Jesus in new, deeper ways when he is near us in our trials. You've experienced him whispering to you, it is I, as you endure, as he draws nearer and nearer and nearer. Or you've at least seen it in others that you've visited. Maybe you know somebody right now who is in a terminal situation, who's a Christian, and yet has such a joyful countenance. Maybe they're not laughing. Maybe they are. But you see a steady purpose in their heart, a a commitment in their heart to Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you can't have fun. You should, if you can. One of the brothers here in the church is being treated, uh, he's getting a bone marrow transplant up in Northern California. And he's keeping in touch with us for prayer. And he sent me a text uh, the other night with a picture. And he says, this is what I look like with my transfusion. It was one of those Snapchat skull faces, you know, where they superimpose the skull over you. Super funny and stuff. I show it to people and they go, oh man, that's terrible. I didn't know, really? You lose all your hair? No, it's... It's funny. Uh, so you, you can still goof off and have fun, but that's not where you start. You don't, go, you, know, you don't go in dressed like a clown with a juggling act you know, when somebody is in a terminal situation. Uh, and, and so the thing about it is, in your trials, Jesus draws closer to you, and you have a greater sense of his presence. The present tense of endure denotes that we bravely and steadfastly remain under the trying ordeal until it is ended doesn't mean that we will never sink in defeat under a certain trial. We will. We do. I'm probably in six or seven different trials right now, and maybe I'm on top of one of them, I think, at any given time 
and the other five are kidney punching me. Uh, and it just, you know, but failure can be repented of and reversed. James portrays us as enduring the trials and refusing to give up. Enduring trials is our lot in life. What James said next looks beyond life on the earth to eternity. He says, when you have been approved, you'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Uh, James reminds us that we each have a personal appointment in the future with Jesus, one-on-one. If you're a believer, you have eternal life as a gift. If you die, you'll be absent from your body, but immediately present with the Lord. You might not die. Jesus promised to return for his church to take us to heaven. And that means we won't all die. Those who are alive at his coming will be raptured. You'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, caught up to the clouds to be with Jesus and the resurrected saints in glorified bodies. Afterwards, it says, we will each receive the crown of life. Now, this could be a reference to just being in heaven itself. Uh, We are going to receive the consummation or the crowning of the promise of eternal life. So you have eternal life right now. To be absent from the body, you'll be present with the Lord. If the rapture happens, you'll be with the Lord. But it's not the kind of eternal life that you need for heaven because you're in this terrible body that's breaking down. Once you have your new glorified body, that is the crowning jewel of the promise of eternal life. And so that's part of this. But most likely, it's also referring to a specific crown that will be given to each one of us because you read in the revelation of Jesus Christ that in heaven... The church has crowns which we frequently cast at the Lord's feet in adoration and worship. You know, every church has its own style of worship. And, you know, whether you stand or sit or clap or scream or fall down or, you know, run around the building. Everybody, you know, has a different thing. In heaven, we'll be throwing things all the time. I'm surprised that actually, maybe I don't know about it, but this should be happening in Pentecostal churches all the time. I mean, you should, you should be given a crown at the door. This is a new movement I'm starting right here. You watch. It's going to happen. Start, it'll start in Florida where all this stuff starts for some reason or in Northern California. But they'll start issuing crowns and people will just start casting their crowns at, at, you know, at the throne or something that's on stage. Because that's what we're going to do in heaven. And so if you're worried that, hey, I'm not even going to have a crown and you're going to have to get next to Billy Graham and steal one of his to participate... <laughs> You'll at least have the crown of life because all Christians will have that signifying their eternal life with the Lord. Eternal life and rewards in heaven are promised to those who love him. Was James establishing a scale of love and suggesting we are falling short? If you read the commentators or you listen to Bible studies, we always default to this kind of thinking. Promise to those who love him. Do you love him? How do you know you love him? You don't love him perfectly. If you loved him, you'd tithe more, for sure. Yeah. I mean, seriously, it's, you know how comics, uh, comedians, sometimes they go dirty. You know, it's hard to be a clean comedian, and if people aren't laughing, they start telling dirty jokes. Pastors, I'm letting you in on a a ministerial secret here. If If pastors don't feel like they're getting a reaction, they go negative. And they start making you feel bad. If everybody prayed as much as you prayed, how much prayer would get done? If everybody gave as much as you give, how much kingdom work would press forward? Very little. And you and I can laugh about it because we're Calvary Chapel, but I mean, in the church you came out of, you were crying. 
You're, re- you're, ho- you're glad you left your wallet at home. You learned to leave your wallet at home, as a matter of fact. <laughs> You'd rather get a ticket on the way home than have them take your wallet. But anyway, th- so it's easy, to go na- it's easy to make Christians feel bad. So those that love him. Was he saying that the reward seat of Jesus, our love quotient, will be revealed? Sort of like a credit score? So there you are before the Lord, one-on-one and in the back, and now your love quotient. Negative 10. Got a little tiny crown for you that you can wear on your earlobe. That's how we think. But I think those who love him is just another name for a Christian. Of course we love him who first loved us. We're in a love relationship. So I could say, hey, Christians, or I could say, hey, you who love the Lord. Well, who loves the Lord? Christians, that's who. Those who have been saved because he first loved them and you've responded in love. Now, your love can wax cold. You can leave your first love. We're aware of that. Jesus has dealt with that. He says, look, he wrote to the church at Ephesus. He says, some of you left your first love. But here's what we're going to do to correct that because I know in your heart that you really do love me. And so Jesus comes to us in that way. Now, you've heard it said, and probably you've said it to someone yourself, that the Bible is God's love letter to believers. If that's so, why do we always read it as if it were God's indictment against believers with us always falling short and thereby disappointing him? Let me let you in on a big secret. You will always fall short of perfection until you're in heaven. Have you realized that? You will always fall short. Now, it doesn't mean that we should just give up and just kick back. You know, it means that we should endure our struggles and our trials and our afflictions and our adversity so that the fruit of joy can be more and more produced. But you are going to have failures, significant failures. But that's all taken care of at the cross as you come back to Jesus and he forgives you and starts fresh with you. Every new chance is a second chance. And you sit there and you think, I've had three million chances. No, you've only had a second chance and another second chance and as many second chances as you need to keep following the Lord. Those who love him, that's us as opposed to non-believers. Rather than reproving you for not loving Jesus sufficiently, I remind you how blessed you are to be in this love relationship with your Savior. And that, I think, will help you in your trials more than anything else. He's coming for you, and until he does, he is with you, and he is working on you, especially in your deepest suffering. Let's pray.